Hello and welcome to the Labor of Love podcast. I'm Nari Baker. I'm a Korean transnational adoptee and a mother based on Coast Salish land, otherwise known as the Seattle area. And I'm Robin Park, a Korean adoptee and a therapist living on unceded Tongva, Chumash, and Keech land, otherwise known as the Los Angeles area. Today, we are thrilled to be here with Isaac Etter, a domestic transracial adoptee and a father of an amazing one-and-a-half-year-old. Isaac also is an activist, social entrepreneur, and most recently founder of Identity, a startup focused on providing accessible, diverse, and ethical adoption and foster care education for parents. We are so excited to be in conversation together, and thank you for being with us, Isaac. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here too. I love the show. I love the concept of the show. And so it's uh, just really exciting to be here. Well, thank you for saying yes. I know that we came across you just for our listeners to get some context. We found you on social media. Yeah. We saw that you started following us and we're so honored. And we were like, who is Isaac? And we learned so much about you, the organization that you founded. And we're just like, we have to reach out. So thank you for answering your direct message box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, it was just such a great find. I don't know. You know, you can follow hashtags on Instagram now. And so I will follow like the adoption and transracial adoption hashtags just because the work I do and because I want to just see what's going on. And you guys, I guess you guys probably used one of those tags at some point and your show came up and I was like, huh, I can't believe I had never thought about this at all. Like the fact that it would be so interesting to hear like a whole podcast full of adoptees telling their experience of being parents. Mm. And it was so timely because I'd been thinking so much about being adopted and how it's connected to my parenting. So it's just so much like great timing in the world and in social media um, for me to come across your page. Love that. And it just, I'm so glad our hashtags are working. <laughs> and um, <Yeah. laughs> But also just, we're so glad that it, it brought us together. You know, just to kick things off in our, our previous conversation, you had mentioned you were adopted at the age of two, and now, you know, currently your son is almost two. So just as you were saying, you know, so much is coming up for you now. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is coming up for you as he nears the age of when you were adopted? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess to start off, you know, I was adopted when I was two. For those two years beforehand, my birth mother actually did try to raise me. She struggled with all kinds of issues related to poverty and and houselessness. And so that is when she placed me at two years old and why she placed me, which is, you know, obviously an unfortunate injustice that um, is all too common in child welfare. But reflecting on that time period growing up, you know, as kids, when we don't have any way to contextualize things. We kind of make up our own stories. And so growing up, I always wondered, like, during those two years, was it me, right? Many adoptees, you know, especially, I think, domestic, they either have a long time in foster care or they're adopted pretty fast. That's usually how it goes. And so a lot of the adoptees that I know that I'm friends with um, were either infant adoptees or they spent most of their life in foster care. And so two very dramatic experiences. And so I really didn't have a lot to base my experience of being raised by my mother for two years and her going through that struggle and to understand like what could have been going through her head. You know, after my son, and even before he was born, I think I kind of was like, it's probably going to be pretty weird these first two years, trying to understand who I could have been during that time. Mm. But also, again, trying, you know, the worst thing we can do as parents is project ourselves onto our children. And so you're also trying not to like take it to heart, but that really was the feelings. Like I know that even still to this day, I feel like what I do is I watch my son and wonder, you know, which of these attributes I had, which of these, the good and the bad, right? The, the one and a half year old, so pretty getting pretty chaotic. So I, I think about like when he's destroying the living room, even though he's not doing anything bad. I'm just wondering, like, was I doing the same thing in the houses that were not ours mm. when my mother was struggling to survive? And I have to think about the strain that that had to put on her. You know, I try not to carry any responsibility because that's also a, 
a rough thing we can do as adoptees is carry all this weight. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. But just in, in a realistic standpoint, I have to wonder, even to this day, I am pretty like hyperactive, at least mentally. And as a kid, it was physically and mentally and everything. And so, you know, I just always wonder like what added pressure that was for her in the situation and in relation to raising my own child. And I think about all the luxuries that I have right now that she didn't have. Feel like I'm able to resonate and see her differently is really the feelings that are happening. If I had my son and I was living on a stranger's couch and my son was destroying their living room every waking moment and I was battling the stress of like trying to figure out how I'm going to establish myself and take care of this child and take care of all the messes that he's creating even though that's not his fault, I personally, I guess I've stepped back from some of the pain and some of the resentment and just kind of seen it more as courageous, mm. which I think is, is a new feeling for many adoptees. And I actually never in my life would have actually thought that I would ever say that or feel that or experience that in relation to my birth mother. You know, again, it's like it's one of the craziest things about being an adoptee and being parents is that now we get to put ourselves in those shoes of our parents. Mm, yes. And so yes. depending on your story, that can be really good, really bad. Some adoptees, I think they realize, you know, they can have a hard time because they're like, why couldn't my parent do this? I'm doing fine. Not to say that they're wrong, but sometimes as adoptees, we actually don't understand the context of our adoption. And that's an injustice in and of itself. But when we don't understand the context, we're just left to imagine or assume. Um, and sometimes we don't have a choice because we just need to find some kind of healing. I think I'm really blessed and it's a privilege that I do have some context. And I think that has added to me both having hard times being a parent early, but also been able to experience some of that forgiveness. Thank you so much for all of what you shared and just the many touch points that you brought to light. For so many of us, adoptees and non-adoptees alike, that a parenting brings a new sense of compassion mm -hmm. for our parents or just a different perspective, maybe if not full compassion about the challenges of parenting. But then within an, adop an adoptee's experience, the profound nature of what that means for kind of the way that we can really almost revolutionize our, our own narrative. And, and take it to a new level or a deeper place or just a wider space. So, yeah, I just feel like uh, the, the level of reflection that I hear you've done within such a short <laughs> amount of time, too. It hasn't even been two years yet. I think speaks so much to the adoptee experience as well. You know, that not only are we doing the work that we're doing in the world, raising their children, going through all of the growing pains of being a parent, but it forces upon us this deep, intense self-reflection and life reflection and family reflection on top of all of that. So just want to give you lots of respect and love for <laughs> being you. deep, deep in it. I feel like as adoptees, we kind of have to be. It's like we spend our whole life with all of these questions. And it's almost like our adult life and the different things we go through and the different people we encounter, we're kind of putting together the pieces of all of those questions that have been living with us since we were so young. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them will never get to put together fully. I, I think that's one of the most interesting like reflections in my adult life as an adoptee is when I've spent time with people who have placed their children for adoption. That answers some of the questions that I've thought about for, for a long time. When I spend time with other adoptees, that answers some of the questions. Um, and there's just constantly, you're trying to fill in these pieces. That reminds me of Dr. Gina Samuels, who's out of University of Chicago, talks about this idea of information poverty, right? That, you know, we unlike others who have the privilege of knowing like the date of birth, the time of birth, even our birth weight, right? Which we end up witnessing as we birth a child, but really that as an adoptee, not all of us have that information, or if we do, it may not be accurate, right? And so I just, when you are saying putting the pieces of the puzzle or kind of making sense of our story, that can make it really difficult when we don't have that privilege of really knowing and having access to this information. 
there's so many different ways to look at these larger social phenomenons and what we go through, you know, and kind of what Isaac was touching on about context is everything. And if we don't fully know our context, the context of our birth parents, then it creates for a skewed sense of judgment that we may have over them and ourselves for that matter as well until we can get better tools is a really good juxtaposition because many of us were adopted into wealthier contexts than maybe our birth contexts. And that is lauded as being why we're lucky, quote unquote, or why we should be grateful or why our lives are, quote unquote, so much better than they would have been. But once you bring in this idea of information poverty into the mix, then you're you're also showing that there's another value system out there that's being completely overlooked and repressed, you know, that knowing who your ancestors are, what your name was at birth, knowing your birth family is actually a wealth and it's a right in many cases it's also a privilege mm. that needs to be added into this conversation um so there's a more balanced view about really truly how quote unquote privileged we are mm-hmm. and how good adoption uh, is or not or whatever you know um just to c- complexify this conversation you know i think that's interesting to frame it like that Obviously, I've heard that before, but I think the way you framed it is so interesting. And I wonder if it was framed like that more when when relating to like privileges and what is the store of value, right? Because we, like you said, we think about being in a better position only related to wealth and only related to money. But most people who are a part of families are very into like lineage, especially wealthy families. Mm. I'm just wondering how that's going to apply to how my work does too, to be honest, mm-hmm. because that the way you framed it, I feel like re- would resonate so well with people to understand why their kids might be having anger issues around adoption. Because I could see so many people, so many parents who adopt being on the other side, like agency told us, you know, we're giving them a better life. We've done everything there, all the, all the, this and that. And just them sit feeling like stuck. But I think describing it as that kind of like information poverty and like not having the answers to those questions can lead you into such a place where you do feel angry or you struggle with mental illness and things like that. And like, I've always known that kind of like just like because it's my experience, but I've never actually described it like that. And I think that could be really valuable to especially people in the space who work with people who are adopted, who work with foster children. Because we're not giving enough attention to just what you just said, is that the information poverty can be so deep and paralyzing sometimes that that's why some of these placements just aren't going well, because we're actually not supporting the children adequately by understanding what their actual needs are. Coming back around to a different set of feelings that you had towards your birth mother, you said that you actually felt a sense of that she had a lot of courage to do what she did to raise you for two years and then ultimately decide to place you in an adoptive family. And and I can only imagine just how much personal work you have to do to get to that place. And I think that that's where these conversations get really murky from adoptees to adoptive parents, for example, because I think a lot of adoptive parents can easily say, you know, like a birth parent's courageous. But without doing that deep dive into the personal work. And then when an adoptee says it, it can just validate that simplistic view of it. But it's really coming from a much deeper and different place. Yeah. For an adoptee to have that reflection or any reflection positively about their birth parent, like you said, is a sign of work. And actually, I think a bravery for adoptees. Because we feel so much pain around so many people that are related in that parent status. Like, I'm sure you guys have pain with your adoptive parents for all the ways that they couldn't understand you. I have pain, even though I love my adoptive parents, pain with my adoptive parents for how much they couldn't understand me. But then we also have an immense pain towards our birth parent that we can or cannot understand, depending on your situation. And I think parents view it as courage, birth parents as courageous, because they are the benefactors. But when 
adoptees view their birth parents as courage is because they've undergone a level of clarity and healing, Mm -hmm. which are two very, very different things. To call somebody courageous when you're getting something in return is kind of worthless. You can believe it. I'm not saying it's impossible. The power of position that, that adoptive parents are always in in this situation means that their antidote of courage doesn't really mean much because if the birth mother changed their mind, would you still call her courageous? Mm. If she decided to not place with you last second, is she still courageous? Come on. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's the pull I think here. And I appreciate you bringing that up because like literally when you said that, just that image playing in my mind, just the, the power difference, even to this day, as we're adult adoptees, still the huge power difference. It is for our adoptive parents to call our birth parents courageous versus us. And what that actually means, in, they mean two separate di- things. Um, and so I appreciate you bringing that up. Everything that you just said, absolutely. You know, and I think that's where the conversations between adoptees and adoptive parents gets really hard because the same words maybe are being used, but the reference points, the perspectives and the depth are really different. Really different. I wanted to go back to your son though and and in a previous conversation we were, you know, getting deep <laughs> as we're getting now, which I'm totally into. <laughs> um but you said that you had experienced some feelings that were like jealousy or jealousy towards your son with how he's connecting with his mom, especially before he is the age of 2 when you the same age when you're adopted and I just think that so many adopted D parents can relate. I can definitely relate to that with my daughter, especially when she was an infant. Like it was such a, a validation to hear you say that because it resonated so deeply with me. And I was just wondering why you think that this is such a hard thing to discuss with our community, this like brutal honesty, but yet the gifts are the validation and the sense of connectedness. And then what are the other things that we could really benefit from discussing that are really challenging, maybe taboo? but sharing with each other and validating each other um, on this parenting journey from your perspective. Part of it is that underneath all of us, and maybe this is going to be a tension point, we really want to be normal, biological children. And that is a very, I think, normal desire for people. But I think as adoptees kind of goes back to the information poverty thing. I think it all kind of connects. I think for us to watch our children experience a life that we could never can bring a very tense environment, probably just inside of us, like not for our house, but it's a tense environment inside of us because we have to balance our love for our children with the fact that we are extremely, at least internally, probably to some degree, upset that we never got to experience what they're experiencing right now. Mm. Even if we had fantastic adoptive parents, the life that our children are living is inherently going to be whatever the societal norm is, which growing up is probably all we wanted to experience, especially as transracial people in, in in these environments that often didn't reflect us. And so we have this amazing opportunity to give our kids something we never had. But for us to give our kids something we never had means that we have to witness them get something Mm, that we never had. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So Isaac, what does that look like for you on a day-to-day? I think for me, it's really not so much jealousy in the sense that like, I wish he was like that way with me because I think it's very normal for young children to be very close with their mothers. Mm Mm-hmm. But I, where it actually gets tense for me internally is actually wondering if I was that close to my birth. In my head, I actually wonder if that was the relationship that we had or if it wasn't. That's also the question is like, what maybe we just weren't that close, which can also be interesting to think about, but also never to know. Mm-hmm. Whatever our relationship was, still lives inside of me, right? It's kind of like the body keeps score mentality. If we had a broken relationship where even as an infant, I, I didn't trust her or whatever, like that still lives inside of me, but I'm not really going to ever know that probably until I get face to face with her or maybe ever. 
somewhere a part of me has experienced a relationship with my birth mother, either like he has with like my son has with his mom or a tenth one. And obviously it gets broken and mishmashed around with adoption. But that's really, I think for me, there was definitely like just many times where I just kind of, I don't know, it's an uncomfortability, but you're trying to balance it out by like not being, I don't know, negative. You're like, you don't want to be negative because it's a beautiful thing that's happening, but it's also like a moment where you have to sit back and wonder about, again, this big gap in information that you have about what your life was like, what your relationship was. And me having those two years with my birth mother, well, that means that there was time. There was two years of time that we could have had any kind of relationship. It's interesting not knowing it. And it kind of goes back. I feel like we're going to, that information poverty is going to stay with me because I think it just, I would also add a line of clarity for me, which is that like, it goes back to that moment. Even as a parent, we're still experiencing that information mm-hmm. poverty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I think, what I experience very often is I had those two years with birth mother, but I don't really know that much about them other than the conditions that were surrounding them. But as we know, the conditions that are surrounding something don't necessarily mean that everything around it was bad. People live in poverty and are happy and love each other and have good families. And so it's interesting to wonder what was inside all of those exterior circumstances and then to watch my son, not to say that we're like having a luxury life, but we're not living in poverty, to have him experience, you know, at least a sense of comfort and ease and then this beautiful relationship with his mother. There's all these questions that arise about my own experience. We appreciate you naming that. that tension that just is housed and and that we do embody, I think, so much of and how that can be activated and how it can be triggered in so many ways and and striking that balance. I think what really you are saying is that you have this balance between really feeling this immense love for your child, of course, and then also feeling frustrated and or jealous or all of that and and a mixture of in between and and having to hold both you know that's a fine all the emotions balance yeah yeah (laughs) and show up as a parent right um day after day while you are constantly perhaps being activated and or what i think i hear you also saying is maybe fantasizing or wondering you know what was that like Am I seeing what, you know, if you could time travel back, you know, what you would maybe be imagining and and then just kind of the grieving that can also come up around that as well, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Properties are the best fantasizers, man. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> we can think of like every situation in a hundred different ways, right? Yeah. 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 That's what we grew up doing, man. Just. <laughs> thinking about everything <laughs> right? yeah yeah and and I think that's where I'm imagining as as a parent right now you you just see it like there's no imagining that between your son and you know the relationship that you both have together or the the dyadic relationship that he has with his mom it's just right there so yeah what a, a balance that you have to do yeah it's a day, it's definitely a day in and day out process. It's like you said, I haven't been a parent for the longest. And so there's still going to be the feelings of after two. So there's also going to be, okay, now I would have been in my adoptive home. So what, what, what am I going to relate to this experience after this point? So there's still an interesting, I think, a room of growth for me in this process of just feeling like, okay, we're almost done experiencing the time period where I would have been with my birth mother still, but now we're about to be adopted. At least if I'm again projecting myself onto my son, but you know, it's kind of just like how it's kind of happening in my head. At least it's just like, I'm like, okay, so this is how he is during this age group. So now I'm going to watch the age groups where I was adopted. And I'm, I'm just curious what feelings I'm going to have then, to be honest. I don't really know yet. I'm sure there's going to be all kinds of them. You know, me, I started struggling with like mental health issues when I was six related to being adopted. So it's going to be interesting to watch my son turn six and hopefully 
be a very like healthy and normal child and probably not be crying about you know the fact that his birth mom had other children and didn't place them you know i mean that was my issue at six you know because i found out when i was around six and so it's going to be interesting to watch my son not have that experience like he's just gonna live Mm -hmm. and so i wonder what jealousy what feelings what things may happen then as i yeah again watch him have the life that we didn't yeah and and on a parallel experience i'm just even imagining how as you know we know children develop in their brains and in their minds and being able to start to make sense of of their story as well as others and and starting to ask questions and their curiosities about your family and you know those kinds of questions we hear that from other adoptee parents of how they're addressing that or how you know they're bringing it and just normalizing it from day one or just, you know, how that activates certain things when they are asking questions that um, we may or may not know the answers to, right? Will be also, you know, a process as you are, you're curious about your own experience around it. And then also as your son is also starting to get curious as well. I I do think that because we, we've been through so much at such a young age in terms of that internal reflection and the wrestling with unanswerable questions our whole lives. Like I do actually think that adoptee parents are really good at telling their kids they don't know something or being a little bit more maybe open up and upfront about like how they're feeling. Like that's actually been one of my biggest goals is just to be as congruent as possible. I am that. Like I can <laughs> I act it and I say it, you know, like or yeah. like I don't know. And I am sad about that, you know, like, mm-hmm. because I think that we remember at such a young age being on the one hand, not able to hold so much, you know, it's so hard and it comes out in all these different ways, behaviorally and internally. Mm. But then also because we are forced to hold all of it, know that there is that incredible capacity with young people, even at really young ages. So I think that there is like this really unique uh, and beautiful sense of, you know, like my kid will be able to handle this because I did not to like put a bunch of extra stuff on them, but you know, like I can describe and explain complex things. I don't have to like simplify it so much. That reminds me of some of the probably unknowingly positives of adoption. We as adoptees are amazingly resilient though that isn't great because it's a byproduct of an injustice, it does kind of add this layer, I think, for us where we get to view the world differently and probably a little bit more realistically than our our peers that grow up in their biological families because we're experiencing different things, different breaks, different tension points, and we're also observing so much. Because as adoptees, we're not just reflectors, we're also watchers. We kind of project and kind of adapt to the circumstances that we're in. Oh, yeah. You know, sometimes we don't necessarily carry our own personality for a while. We're just adapting because that's a byproduct of whether it's foster placements or all these other things. Survival. Uh, Survival, exactly. Again, not an outright good it's a byproduct of a negative, but I think what it, it does for us as parents and as adults is it gives us this ability to look past ourselves. And I know for so many of us, especially transracial adoptees, our parents couldn't look past us when it came to race. Everything's fine up until you try to be whatever race you actually are. And as adoptees, well, For a long time, we were just trying to figure out what we are. And so we experimented with a lot of different things. One thing that I wrote before my son was born, I wrote this letter to him before he was even born just because I wanted to put something out. And I'd be fine with sharing more of it. I wrote Mm. kind of like a, a mini book just about my experiences during the 2020 protest. It was a book directed towards my son about the experiences that I was having and wondering if I would ever meet him because some of them were so, were police violence. I was in the mix of so many different things. I thought I may not ever meet him. 
And so I, I wrote this book kind of like throughout that summer and into the fall. Wow. In one of the last parts of this, I wrote, um, your grandparents had to learn to accept things about me they couldn't understand, as I am sure that as you grow into your own person, I will not fully understand everything about you. A lot of my messaging to him had themes of that because all my life I felt like people couldn't understand me and couldn't accept the different things that I was. And I just never wanted him to experience that. Mm-hmm. When it comes to our parents not understanding God, that was a big point of writing for me when I was thinking about becoming a parent, because I know how many times in my life my parents couldn't understand me and how kind of hurtful that was. And as adoptees, since we get to see so much, we take in so much, and I feel like we have a much more open-mindedness. And so I wanted to kind of put some of that in writing about what the kind of person that I wanted my son to be, um, even in relation to me. And in that, um, this is the last kind of letter, a part of this book that I wrote. It's called In Hope of a Better World. And it was really an open letter. It's in book style, but it really is an open letter to my son that was written during the summer and fall of 2020 about one racial injustice in my experience, you know, in those protests, but also just like thinking that I might, anything could happen at those protests. People did die at those protests. So wondering if I died, how would I want my son to remember me? What would I want him to know about me? And this is called To Close. So this is the last probably like page. I certainly didn't plan to write these pages at 22 or to be on my way to becoming a father. I sit grappling with what I can teach you about the world, what I can instill in you that will make you strong in yourself. In doing that, I had to think of all the things growing up that made me want to be anything but myself. I had to think of the big influence in my life, such as Christianity, my parents, their parents, the community I was raised in. If there's one thing I want for you is not to be limited by religion or by what may be the limited point of view of those who you go to school with or who are our neighbors, but be brave and forge your own understanding of the world. If I'm being even more honest, not to be limited to what I can understand. I defied everything my parents thought to be true, constantly and unintentionally. I couldn't help be a queer Black person, but being adopted into a white Christian home at two, I'm sure your grandparents never planned that one day I'd call them out on their racism or come out of the closet. Your grandparents had to learn to accept things about me they couldn't understand, as I am sure that as you grow into your own person, I will not fully understand everything about you. Despite being so different from your grandparents, they continually accepted me and loved me. And I pray that I follow that example. That's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for reading that to us and, and just really sharing what was you were grappling with in the moment. There was so much happening um, at that time in all of our lives, but also just the internal pieces that you've obviously your whole life, right? Really struggled with or or had to wrestle with it, but then just to be able to acknowledge that in this open letter to your son. I I mean, I'm just so moved about this idea of even doing such a beautiful act of love and, and what a gift to one day potentially share or give to him, but also just really recognizing so much um, in that. So thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Thank you for, for listening. One of the main reasons that I wrote this was because I was kind of scared that he would never know who I am. Like he would never understand, like sure, he might be able to see that my website or things like that, but he would never understand the process that got me there and all the underlying factors. And then when I think about my experience as an adoptee, that's exactly what I'm experiencing with my parents. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that just this conversation has brought into me that I think all I was really doing when writing this was trying to, just in case of emergency, in case I were to pass, Mm -hmm. make sure that he was left not feeling like there was a million untolds, a million missing pieces. So it's interesting that this conversation kind of is bringing that 
out of my head because I never thought of it like that, but it rings true to the reason that I wrote it was just that like I didn't want there to be a million missing pieces. I mean, I think that like going back to the information poverty, it's like it haunts us, right? And yeah, I mean, I think so many adoptees have that sense of if I'm gone, what will be left of me? Like I already feel isolated. I'm the only one maybe. And then if I'm gone, like did I leave a mark on the earth? Did I leave a mark on my relationships? All of those questions that deal with a forever severing, you know, whether that be in life through adoption or through death with mortality, um, they're actually really kind of intertwined. At least the feelings can be you know, never seeing your birth mother again, you, if she is still alive, it is like experiencing a death, especially as oh, yeah. a very young person that, um, you know, maybe can't differentiate the feelings of, or it's a lived experience versus like just this knowledge of, well, she is still alive out there somewhere. But yeah, I think many of us to an extent probably have very similar experiences to death with our parents at some point, especially if it's a closed adoption and you know that that doorway isn't open, you might know they're alive out there somewhere. And that can, I guess, be the glimmer of hope, but the grieving process is still underneath. Like I, I know my birth father, for as I know, all I know is alive, but I've never, I have no clue how to find him, contact him. And I haven't had much care about that. But I remember when I was young, there was a process that I went through, like when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, of thinking about him in almost the sense that he was dead. Like, I remember thinking about him in that context of like, there's this person out there, but like, whether they're alive or dead, I don't even know and couldn't even find that information out. I got a Facebook profile of my birth mother just to verify that she's alive. So I can have pain and resentment and whatever towards this person, but I actually couldn't find it in me to have pain or resentment towards my birth father because I just couldn't contextualize him in, in any regard. Not a photo, not a document, nothing. There was nothing for me to connect with him. So it was almost as if he was dead or didn't exist. And I think for some people that can be painful. For me, I, at, at that time, kind of took it as like an accidental blessing because I didn't go through like two pain processes, mm. <laughs> like all the pain that I was feeling towards my birth mother. I just kind of didn't feel it towards my birth dad and to a degree that was kind of nice because what I went through with the anger and things that I felt towards my birth mother, though, again, she wasn't even around, just my internal process and pain was so heavy and excruciating at times. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine like having to kind of like try to fit this other person into that pain i'm not sure that other adoptees have that where like one of their birth parents just kind of seems to like fade away but that's kind of how what happened to me i don't really know how to ever feel about that because i i legitimately don't have any desire to know the person not they're not even an angry way i just literally go throughout life and i'm like oh yeah there's probably some old dude that looks very similar to me out there somewhere I don't know what happened. Maybe it is part of our experience young where we kind of just grieve our parents and then like try to move on with our lives. You know, my birth mother was always in my face because there was always social media connected to her. So I wasn't really able to forget her. You know, like I follow her on Instagram. So I see when she posts and then we've been a Facebook friend since I was a teenager. So I see when she posts on there, her family members, it's like my grandmother and aunts and uncles on my birth mother's side have always been connected to the adoption. I've been on my birth uncle's podcast before and like he has always been like semi-involved in my life. Like oh, wow. even just by reaching out to my parents, like I didn't know, like he's always just been like thankful that my parents adopted me because I guess he also knew the situation that everybody was living in. And so there's all these external factors that make me not be able to even not confront my birth mother like i always have to live with that but my birth father i've never had to i've never had a reason to feel any kind of loss or anything towards the him and so i don't know if other adoptees experience that it's a very interesting thing that i still don't really understand fully but yeah i just don't feel really anything towards him yeah i think you bring up 
again, like we talked about this, this story of survival and protection, you know, at a time when your, (laughs) your brain that's still fully trying to develop is trying to comprehend one ambiguous loss, let alone having to add on a whole nother one. I mean, that's a lot for a child and let alone an individual, even as a grown ass adult for us to try to make sense of. Right. And so I think, you know, that completely makes sense about why you've had to have this story of protection or just really, you know, this way of focusing on one birth parent who also, again, I think we've talked about this in previous conversations on our, our show is that, you know, we know that at least, right, we know that that birth parent knows of our existence because as a birth mother, they did go through the birth and delivery. So, you know, I think there's something to that. And, you know, also, I think, as you said, you spent the first two years together. So there's a, a connection and a bond there. It goes deep. So appreciate you naming and acknowledging that and just seeing how all of us can experience and hold, or or maybe it's too hard to hold, both birth family members, birth mom and birth dad, or and again, like you said, you have a whole lot of extended birth family. That's a lot. Welcome to our world of fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, fun is one way to describe it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that brings up the work that you do because you are actively involved in a lot of different family systems as adoptees when we choose a profession, you know, that's really intimately working within our community, serving different parts of the community. I know that, you know, how activating it can be on a daily basis, right? (laughs) Yeah. But also how much it can really just be such a calling. And I I get this sense for you that you just feel so called to duty and, and just the amazing things that you're creating and these opportunities of learning and healing and connection. You know, can you share more about um, the work you're doing and then, you know, the career path and how it's affecting your parenting journey. Yeah, absolutely. And what truth that you just spoke. I mean, to be an adoptee in the adoption space is its own act of maybe craziness, to be honest. You know, for the last four years, I've just been telling my story, being a consultant in the field. I had this small consulting practice called Editor Consulting. Honestly, it it started just because I was volunteering with an adoption agency and, you know, one of the social workers told me, hey, you should think about doing this for a career. It was 2019. And even still, there's not really a clear pipeline to that being a career. And so in 2019, there was even less of a pathway. You know, I think I was 20 at the time. I just kind of was like, all right, let's let's figure this out. I had been speaking for a couple months and you know, just strange things were happening. You know, I'd come and I'd speak. I'd, they'd give me like an hour and I never really prepared anything. I just kind of like, I'd just show up and tell my story. And uh, I, man, I'd get these crazy q and A. I I'd get these like hour long q and A's. Like it'd be an hour and we'd be there for like an hour and a half to two hours just because the q and A's would just start to go crazy. And I think I just started to realize that I kind of had this gift that I didn't know I had which is where that I was able to tell the truth in a way that opened the doorway towards parents asking questions that they needed to ask. Now, the rub here is that, especially at 19 and 20, you have a very loose understanding of your boundaries, especially when you've never done something before. Mm. So there was a lot of learning to do about like what I would talk about. Like It's only been this year that I've started talking about my birth parents more. That's usually been something that I don't talk about. And I learned that from way back then, I guess three or four years ago, when I would talk about them or people would ask me questions, it would be a very triggering moment for me. That's kind of how this progression started and how I got into the field. I was joking on uh, Matthew Charles' podcast that I have an obsessive personality. And so when I get into something, I obsess about what it is, how it's working, how it's operating. And so when I got into the adoption field in 2019, I just got so obsessed with like how it worked, who did what, who were the other adoptees who did work in this space, what, what mattered out here, what, what created value. And so for, for three years, that's all I did was just study, meet agencies, our consulting grew, which was a huge blessing. 
But, you know, in the last two years, something has become very clear to me, which is that the same issues are happening pretty much nationally and even internationally um, when it comes to the fact that adoptive parents have really low understanding of what actual adoption is. And so they don't understand what they're walking into because we know as adoptees, it's very different to raise adopted children than it is to raise biological children for all the reasons that we stated on this podcast here and talked about throughout this day. What I saw as being the issue with what was happening in adoption was not so much that adoption was the bad thing, because obviously adoption is its own injustice because any family being separated is an injustice. But the concept of adoption actually wasn't what I was finding an issue with. It was all the systems surrounding it and the ways that people were participating in it. And one of the biggest issues that I found at least what I felt like I could address, because it's definitely not the biggest, because the poverty thing is obviously one of the bigger ones, was the fact that adoption education is extremely misleading to parents. And because it's so misleading, it has an overwhelmingly negative impact on adopted and foster children. Because parents are sold a dream of a family, and adoptees are sold that they're going to have parents finally. Mm-hmm. What happens is that you can't erase the separation and connection that that child had with their birth parents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those issues are going to come wrapping back around. Mm-hmm. Um, and then especially if you adopt an older, even two years old child, I can remember stories that my parents told me about just like just the behavioral issues I had when I was first adopted. You're going to have all these reactions, which are going to be really tough if for the last year of your life, six months of your life, there was somebody who was telling you, yeah, there's a difference. And if you have this, if you do these steps, it's going to be just like having your own kid. Like the message has always been, you know, if you do these things, if you're prepared, then it's going to be just like a biological kid. And yes, biological kids obviously have their own set of issues. It can be troubled, but The truth is that adoptees need a different set of supports to succeed. All the same things that I was reading in even just that that little small book of my book is that like our parents, I feel like, grow up wildly misunderstanding us Mm -hmm. and why we do what we do. And it's usually connected to the fact that they were told that over time, it will kind of be like the adoption part of this fades away and it'll just be your child. And so... I wanted to address that issue, but I wanted to do it in a way where we could address it nationally, which is where I kind of got uh, intermixed with tech and kind of was trying to figure out like how we could take a a tech side to this. And that's why um, I started Identity. What we've done at Identity is we've taken all the post-placement supports, or at least as many as we could right now, and put them into an app so that families could get continued learning constantly on demand, live and on the go. And kind of our mission here with this is that while I was doing kind of like my due diligence just on this market before building, some statistics that kind of kept rising up were like 50% of our house's population comes from foster care, 80% of people with significant mental health illness are connected to foster care, we have incarceration numbers. And this is actually all connected to parenting because our only line of defense as children is our foster parents or our adoptive parents. We have no control. And so if we want to change these outcomes for adopted children, it has to start with parents. And that means that we need people who are working hard to keep families together. And with families that can't stay together and our children are going to end up adopted, We need people who are working wildly hard to make sure that parents have the right education, resources, and support to support children. And those support services look different than adoption support services have looked historically. Yeah. One issue, and I think the greatest point of this, is that we've all seen a comedy TV show or a show in general that has done some trope about the little black girl who is adopted by a white family 
and they can't figure out how to do her hair, right? I've seen this more times than I can count. Nobody has ever, for some reason, found a, a solution to that, like a, a flat solution to that, which is ridiculous, right? We all can recognize that hair is an essential part of culture, especially as a Black person. Mm-hmm. And we can understand that if white parents don't know how to do it, there's going to be issues. Like, that's just a fact that we, we all know. Any professional will tell you. But do any of us know an agency that requires a hair care training before you can adopt transracially? Or do any of us know of a, a resource that's given to parents where they can learn how to do hair? And so... When I think about the millions of injustices that happen inside of child welfare, when I think about adoption, the post-placement, so after you've become adopted by a family, one of the largest injustice that happens to children and to parents is that we actually just don't support them. We feed them a dream, and then we don't give them anything to support them through the challenges that they're going to have. That in and of itself for me is kind of what led to identity is that I want parents to adopt because I think children should be in homes. But if they're going to adopt and not cause more harm than if they didn't, they actually have to have the knowledge and the resources. At Identity, that's really what we're trying to do, is bring all these essential knowledge, resources, and support right to parents' phones. We do monthly live webinars, cooking, We're working on hair care tutorials right now, and we're going to do a live one every single month. We're bringing support groups next month. And all of these are are almost all led by adoptees. And this is really strategic, which is that, again, if we're going to actually fix the problem and not add another layer of adoption fluff, uh, which is what a lot of these services are, then we have to do that and mean that right? We can't bring another support service that does the exact harm Mm. that the other ones Mm. are doing. And so we try as hard as we can to hire as many adoptees as possible. I think all of our webinars so far have been adoptees. Support groups aren't going to be led by an adoptee, but I actually thought that was for the best. I just found a, a social worker that I really trusted who I believed she had the right information to lead it well. I actually just didn't really feel comfortable unless an adoptee actually does that, asking them to lead support groups for adoptive parents, because I can imagine that'd be triggering. It's hard. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. sounds sounds very, very hard. Um, if somebody, if an adoptee wanted to do it, I'd be more than happy to bring them in. But for me, I was like, why don't we wait until that opportunity arises instead mm-hmm. of seeking it out mm-hmm. or asking somebody who hasn't done it. Everything else is adoptees. And just because one, we know the experience. So we can speak truth. And it also makes us a huge outlier. If you look around, I think other than Adoption Mosaic, you're not going to really find adoption resources that are mostly adoptees, where you're getting strong adoptee perspectives mixed with professional perspectives. And that's one thing that I think is really unique about identity is that we bring in people with professional backgrounds, like we brought in Cam Smalls, who's the therapist, who's also an adoptee, Stephanie Euler, who's a social worker and works in adoption and is an adoptee. Like we just brought in people like that who bring this really clever mix of, yes, I work and I understand all the systems and psychology of this, but I also have lived this. So let me tell you what needs to be heard from my perspective and what you need to do. And I just think that for adoption is actually really incredibly unique. There's just not many resources like that. I, I love the work that we're doing, to be honest. Um, it gives me a lot of joy. And especially to watch it grow, we just signed one agency. An agency just signed on to give their families access to it. Um, and that was the first larger contract that we did. Wow, congratulations. Which is super exciting. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. It's super exciting. Just to, one, know that people are hopefully going to find value from it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But um, also then to to kind of see that maybe we were right, that this is a better way of doing this. I personally think being a parent has also led to this perspective of like, if we want to support families, we support families in their language, right? And that's the whole reason for like the mobile 
side of it. We all understand that after a long day, we're not getting up, getting dressed, and getting to a support group. It's just not going to happen. If dinner was a shit show and the living room's a disaster, I'm not leaving now to go somewhere. But if that support group is happening on your phone and I can go to my room and just put the kids to bed, log in, and get that experience, man, what a huge change. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why accessibility is actually in our mission. My goal is not just to bring the best education instead of resources, but to bring the most accessible. And that is something that has historically never happened in adoption, which I think is a huge injustice to children. I think even though we work so hard to equip parents, what we're actually doing is making better lives for children. Because the people who suffer are the children because they have no power. Our whole like zero to 18 as adoptees is us continually being powerless and powerless and powerless to the circumstances that are happening to us. Mm. And the only way to make sure that other children exactly like us have better circumstances is to make sure the homes that they're going into are there for them, understand them and, and equip them. And even if they don't understand them and know how to do that, Let's at least make it as easy as possible for them to find out how to and make it as easy for them to learn and keep learning. Yeah, you're doing such incredible work. It's so important. And just congratulations on getting the first agency to connect. And I just imagine there's going to be so many more coming your way. And just your vision and keeping it so real, putting adoptees in leadership positions and connecting across, I'm guessing, transracial you know, and transnational as well, like bringing the community together in this way. And it's, again, going back to valuation as well, that, you know, we've all been consultants our entire lives, right? But actually getting that title and getting paid for it and being recognized for it on a professional level is just so powerful for BIPOC people, for BIPOC adoptees. Um, So just want to say thank you. Yeah, thank you guys. It's just so awesome. And people can find out more about this incredible work at identitylearning.co. And we'll definitely put that on our socials and everything too, because I know that there's going to be a lot of adoptees and adoptive parents who really are going to want to connect in and check out all the stuff that you're doing. You know, I think in our, our final question that we love to ask folks Aside from identity, which is a huge labor of love that you're doing, and aside from parenting, what currently are you working on that's um, some other labors of love? That's a great question for right now for me, because I am working on a labor of love very privately, and it has been music. Um, I used to play a lot of music in high school, and I recently have refound it as a way to de-stress. Obviously, like running a company is very hard. Um, and then running an adoption related company mm. is another <laughs> Just overcoming some of the very interesting things that are in child welfare. Like, just to give you context, one, one person I emailed to talk to about identity, they told me that they have in person support groups, so they don't understand why their parents would need our products. I remember thinking, Gosh, this is such an interesting uphill to be going through. Because they're not the only ones that have said something like that. Mm -hmm. But just this idea of supporting families and what that actually means and the kind of impact that adoption is leaving currently and what it could leave possibly. But yes, because of all of those comments and all the different things and all the different challenges, I, I started realizing that I don't really have a hobby anymore. Like I needed to do stuff for me. And that's when I kind of rediscovered music and I've been writing and I would like to do something with it at some point, maybe not publicly, but I would like to put together something like recorded and like have it kind of be a testimony to this time of my life. So that has been my, my secret labor of love. If you're in Lancaster, you can catch me at the local guitar center. (laughs) I actually don't own any (laughs) instruments anymore. (laughs) So I go there. That's, that's my, that's my labor of love right now. Nice. Love that so much. And um, yeah, we all need those outlets and music is an incredible space. So, so glad that you, you have that and are rediscovering it. 
and creating and just being in a space that is um, yours to to do and and say and be and create however you want because um, you are certainly in other systems a lot yeah. um, <laughs> exactly. of the other parts of your day. So yeah. Well, thank you so much, Isaac. Thank you. Thank you for just having this no fluff kind of conversation because that's how we we roll and we love and appreciate that about you and just your wisdom and energy. We can feel it all the way coming out of Pennsylvania where you are are located and we will link up all of the amazing work that you're doing so listeners can follow you and, and find you just like we did on social media. So just know that we can put that out there so people can find the support and just continue to amplify the work that you're doing. Thank you. And thank you guys for this space. I mean, this is an extremely unique and also important space. And I hope that we can also, like, I hope that I personally can find ways to utilize this, your content and your recordings to hopefully help some of our parents understand these experiences. So I appreciate the work that you guys are doing and what you're bringing to light and the conversations that you're bringing because they are important in healing. Um, and I think many adoptees, I like me, may stumble onto your page and realize, oh, other adoptees are experiencing this too. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, uh, <laughs> I just think that's beautiful and important and it helps us all feel more seen. Mm-hmm. Thank you all for tuning into our podcast. Um, And if you're into what you're hearing, please spread the word and invite friends to like us, subscribe to us, follow us, and share us on Instagram at Labor of Love Podcast. And if you want to support our podcast, you can Venmo us at Labor of Love Podcast. Thank you for coming along on this journey with us.